Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where you will learn about fun and your health, a joyful prescription. My guest is Dr. Mike Rucker who is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. Dr. Rucker has been academically published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace Health Management. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, Vox, Thrive Global, Mindful, Mindful Green, and more. He currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Mike, thanks for coming back on the show today. It has been too long. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here primarily because you know, the the kernel of the book, the idea, you know, that made up the proposal that ultimately got sold was probably, you know, in part from our previous discussion. So this is a nice little bookend for me. So thanks for having me back on. Oh, fantastic. And I know we talked about it. And I said, well, when, when you get that done, come back. And we all know how hard it is, A, to give birth to a book. And then, and then also, then we have this little thing that happened yep. in between <laughs> that disrupted everybody's life. So I'm so glad you're here. Let's talk about what you and science has learned about the pursuit of happiness. Let's like go from 2018 fast forward to today because there's been so much research done. Yeah, I think the primary insight between the last time you and I talked was really this rich body of research that's taking a critical eye on the Western pursuit of happiness. And what we have now learned is that, you know, obviously there's this industrial complex of folks that sort of push happiness. And there's been a lot of conversations around what toxic positivity is. Yes. And so there's a clear distinction, right? I think no one is making a case that valuing happiness and wanting, you know, the world to flourish is a bad thing. And so let's like put that off to the side because that's certainly, there's a whole host of research to suggest that's where we should head, right? And so wanting people to be happy, wanting people to flourish, we're not trying to villainize that. What we are saying is potentially harmful is pushing people towards this ideal of happiness where you create some concern or over-concern about being happy. And to be quite honest with the listeners, that's where I found myself. I mean, I think um, my initial pull to the International Positive Psychology Association is because I wanted to optimize my life around happiness. 
And so I fell victim to that. I think during the process of writing the book, you know, I realized that this endless pursuit of trying to find something that was never there, you know, sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill was actually making me more miserable. And so, you know, I had all of these tools and generally they would work, right? They would be helpful. You know, gratitude is certainly an amazing tool when you use judiciously. Um, But that the fact that I was like over quantifying, you know, like, where are the correlations? You know, I hit a nine today on my happiness scale, um, you know, and just always being overly concerned was making me quite mindful of the gap between where I had hoped to be and, and where I was. And then what that sets you up for is if something bad does happen and, you know, that's going to happen to all of us at some point. For me, it was losing my younger brother unexpectedly during those moments of despair. If you don't have a big toolbox, it can really lead you into dark places, right? Um, We know that from Fredrickson's work on broaden and build theory. And so I've latched on to some research. One of the researchers that I generally highlight is Iris Mouse out of uh, Cal Berkeley. She's done some really interesting work in this that especially if you live in an individualistic society like we do here in the West, so that you know, any highs or lows are really subjected to an individualistic reality, you know, so like, you know, you win the trophy, but also something bad happens, you have to consume that wholeheartedly, that having this overly concern about happiness can be um, detrimental. And so if that's the case, but we still want to live a joyful life, what can we do differently? And so, you know, where the research has really pointed people to me that are seeking answers is this idea of mindfulness, right? That when we are living in the moment, how can we live those moments most joyfully? And what I have found is that if you have an action bias so that you're sort of organizing your time, um, the opportunities that you have, the friends that you surround yourself with, the environments that you put yourself in, then you're able to elevate sort of this joyful life because you're doing so deliberately. Let's talk about what fun actually looks like. I mean, I think everybody knows what fun looks like to them, but I want to be careful in the description of fun so the listeners know what you're specifically talking about, what we're striving for in the experiential uh, lane. Yeah. And so when we previously talked in 2018, I think purposefully I left it ill-defined, right? Because fun can be interpreted, and we talked about this a little bit last time, you know, what's fun for one person isn't fun for the other, right? I often give the example that for my wife, it's very low arousal activity, um, things like reading a book, relaxing around a pool. And for me, it's high energy stuff, right? It's That's why I've done some Ironman in my life. It's why I love heavy metal <laughs> rock concerts. But the unifying factor is what science calls valence, right? And so the way I define fun as anything on the positive side of valence. And so that's kind of geek speak, psychology speak for pleasurable, right? Anything on the right side of pleasure is fun and anything on the left side, unpleasurable is not fun. And so when we're looking at how we devise the way we do things, whether that's at work, outside of work, during leisure, what is it that we can do to make sure that we stack the deck in our favor to make that time pleasurable? Because the one thing that's interesting that kind of is a flaw of the logic with the hedonic treadmill is the hedonic treadmill kind of assumes that life is infinite, right? But 
what we know is that life isn't infinite. It's finite. And because of that, then you certainly can strategize how you spend your time, not necessarily over optimizing it because we need certain things to live a life of good well-being, good hygiene, right? Things like sleep, you know, things like self-care. But there is certainly two to five hours in most people's day that can be what you want it to be, where you can flex your agency and autonomy and do things in a manner that are more mindful than sort of relying on these heuristics that we built over time as adults that often lead us into just routine behavior that becomes mundane. That's why we become bored and we become lonely. I want to go back to two things. I want to first break down hedonic adaptation a little bit further. So we talk about the, the sort of the two forms of happiness that people explore, hedonia versus eudaimonia. I would love for you to just give the little cliff notes on those so people can contrast and compare what you're talking about there. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about that, oftentimes, and, you know, just to be fair for any other behavioral scientists listening, we now know that a lot of these lottery studies that I'm about to bring up have been put under scrutiny because <laughs> there's, cer- there's certainly some exceptions to this. But what we know from studies that have been replicated is that when we have a windfall or we have something that happens unexpectedly in a good way, that we tend to have this burst of happiness but that ultimately when we track folks over time, we have what's called a happiness set point. And that if we're not mindful about this good fortune, we tend to go back and end up at the happiness level that we were before. And oftentimes, sometimes even a little more unhappy because we've invited new stressors into our life, right? Again, a lot of this research comes from lottery winners. And so if you have a lot of money, now all of a sudden you have third cousins you've never uh, met before. Or asking they want you some of your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you spend it all, right? So you kind of move up, um, you know, to a, a different socioeconomic class, then normalize against those standards and then eventually fall back down. And so now you know, you know, what life's like at that, that um, strata and then you miss it, right? So the way to circumvent that is to mindfully understand what you want out of life and where you really enjoy things so that that bar doesn't move on you, right? So ultimately, to answer your question, it's that the bar always moves, right? And so we're going to, or sorry, that the bar doesn't move if we're not mindful of that. And so that we have this agency and autonomy to decide what it is that we like, but that if we're not mindful about that experience, then ultimately, we're going to sort of subset back to um, what our biology establishes as as our happiness set point. Would you say that the sweet spot really is this blend between hedonia and eudaimonia, that it really is about sort of the pleasures of our senses and our skin versus finding meaning in the actions and activities that we do? I'll nuance that in the sense that it's understanding what is really enjoyable for you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to find your thing, right? It could be that your thing is curiosity, or it could be that it's finding wonder and awe in wherever you find that in life, either through nature, spirituality, or discovery. And so how I would distinguish between those two, which is really being able to find pleasure within your activities and the time spent here on earth, and then this um, lack of of pleasure in things is really 
you know, understanding what connects you to the things that you're doing. And so you've really set me up to, you know, for this next stage of that, you know, the secret sauce is this connection, right? Yes. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm shaking my head. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it doesn't necessarily, if you're an introvert, it doesn't mean that you have to have this connection to people. It could be a connection to an art form like dance or music, or it could be a connection to nature. For some, it could be a connection to spirituality. For some, it could be meaning seeking, right? If that's the stage that you are in your personal development. For some who have kind of transcended that, it could be not finding meaning at all, right? We know that, you know, once you kind of are able to step out of the world needing to make sense, that can be a very sweet spot too. But ultimately it's where you are in life and what you feel connected to. And so where I think you find um, folks kind of stuck in loneliness, boredom, and burnout is that they have no connection to the way that they're spending time. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Michael Rucker to learn more about him and his book, The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Please visit www.michaelrucker.com. You can find him on Twitter at Perform Better on Facebook at mike.rucker.phd, and on Instagram, The Wonder of Fun. Oh, I love that. Here comes the pause. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back talking about fun and your health, a joyful prescription. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Mike Rucker. So Mike, let's jump into another area of the the fun equation here. And that is the value of time, of time being finite and a precious commodity. Yeah. So another emerging idea since the last time we talked and Again, I think one of the folks that I like the most in this area of research is right in your backyard. Her name's Dr. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA. She's been looking a lot at the concept of time affluence. And for the listeners that don't know what that is, it's just like it sounds. It's essentially the same way we look at affluence with regards to financial measures, but only regarded to time as a finite resource. And what Dr. Holmes and others have found is that folks that have a slant towards valuing time over money. So again, you know, being really mindful of how they spend their days correlates with a lot higher happiness. And so what that means in the context of having fun is, you know, really being mindful of, we only have 168 hours in our week, right? And so being able to sort of pick that apart, whether you do a formal time audit or really just pick out one or two hours in any given day, someone framed it, to me this way after hearing me talk at a keynote, she said, I really liked what you had to say. The way I frame it is it's not about holidays anymore. It's about holiday hours. And I thought that was a really good oh, reframe. That's great. 
you know, because we can recapture just our lunch hour or we can recapture that one hour of doom scrolling on Instagram or Twitter or, or Facebook, whatever your poison is. Right. And just being mindful about these little tweaks again, just picking out one or two hours in your day and going, you know, I'm not really spending the, this time the way that I should, you know, in a more joyful fashion. And I can retake control because I do have that agency and autonomy for at least part of my day to do things that light me up instead of drag me down. And so that's the real crux to time influence is one, you know, how are you spending those the time that you do have control over? And for those, you know, fortunate enough, you know, to some degree, we're starting to play in the swimming pool of privilege, right? But if there is a way to redi- redesign your life so that you're capturing even more time back so that you have complete control of how you spend your time, it's clear that people that do have the ability to do that are living some of the most joyful lives. And, you know, to speak further to the time management aspect of it or having time autonomy, even if one is tied to a job and does not have a lot of liberal hours in their schedule, there's always a little bit, even a few minutes that could be carved out for some of these pleasurable activities that are considered fun and meaningful to the individual. That's exactly right. You know, we had gotten into it a little bit in 2018, and I've gone through a uh, down a lot of rabbit holes since then. I've come with this term called activity bundling. I mentioned it in the book a little bit, and that's that, you know, even if we are, a lot of us, I believe you touched on it a little bit in our pre-interview, are part of the sandwich generation. I certainly am. I have two aging parents that I'm taking care of and two young children that I'm taking care of. So I don't have a lot of free time, right? But I am able to deliberately um, create those experiences with the ones that I do need to take care of. So a lot of parents, you know, come into parenting with this sense of of duty, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to sit at the park um, and mindfully, you know, or excuse me, mindlessly scroll on social media or answer, you know, low level emails and kind of burn the time rather than understanding that they could spend that hour any way they want. You know, for me, again, because I like high arousal activities, it could be taking my son to the go-kart track or I ended up taking my daughter to dance lessons because she was already going to gymnastics and it was really just an activity so that she could stay active. And I was like, you know, I was sitting there just watching her and, and she was young and I'm like, why am I doing this when we could, you know, engage in an activity that we both like and create memories together. And so I took her out of gymnastics and we started taking dance lessons together. So that's an example. Yeah, it was great. Right. And so We've now aged out of that just so that people know that was age appropriate. Now she doesn't want to dance with dad and she's back into gymnastics and, you know, and still crushing it. She's still getting gold medals. So the year that she didn't do gymnastics didn't slow her down. So you need to, you know, there's going to be times where you can take advantages of those and all the more reason to understand that time is finite, right? Like using those opportunities that are appropriate during that time and kind of using the drag of time to be a motivator, to go, you know, I don't want to live another day doing things that are just drudgery. And so I think this is really fertile ground. I like to bring this up a lot. You know, we're, the, the window's closing on this, but the pandemic really made a huge, significant proportion of the population mindful that their schedule was a lot more malleable than they thought, right? We, especially in the Western world, you know, that everything is a meritocracy, right? We kind of have to go to work. We need to raise our kids. Everything's done with a sort of Puritan work ethic. And that got 
broken into pieces after the pandemic. Yeah. And so <laughs> I really love discussing with people that are, you know, still have this blue ocean mindset. Like I get it. I do have a lot more agency and autonomy. Now, what do I do? And the next step is pretty easy. You start reconnecting with things that brought you joy. And you also understand that these relationships where you previously looked at them of like, well, I just got to do this because, you know, I brought kids into this world or, you know, my parents need me. Yeah, but you can still create experiences that are joyful for both of you. It doesn't necessarily need to be from this place where it's perceived as work and just another hour burnt in your day. You can do things that bring both of you great joy. Like one of the, you know, dancing for whatever reason seems to be a big one. I just lucked into it. But, you know, oftentimes I'll say that and like, I love dancing and, you know, people will be off to the races. Another one that's a common category for both extroverts and introverts is cooking. So um, a lot of you know f- folks in my position uh, will reconnect with their parents through cooking because their parents always wanted to teach them that. And for whatever reason, because we live busy lives, there wasn't the time, but now their time together is you know mastering a new skill, something that the the you know parent had always wanted to do, and you know the adult you know taking care of their aging parent just need to be reminded that, hey, you have agency and autonomy over how you spend this time. You don't just need to sit there and hear another story. You guys can actually engage in activity. And what's even better is once you get active like that, you know, once both people are participating in life, vitality usually spreads like wildfire. I mean, you know, again, not to use geek speak, but social contagion is a psychological concept for a reason, right? We know that joy and delight it is spread. And so if we bring that to the table, you know, I love your metaphor that fun is medicine. And it certainly is because we can, you know, sort of spread this, this goodwill if we bring it to the table. We know that from mirror neurons. And again, we could get geeky into the science, but if anybody wants to Google mirror neurons, it's a, uh, it's fascinating and it's empirically validated. And anyways, I digress. We are nearly out of time, and I want to make sure that we touch upon something that is, I think, really important and very much connected to your book, The Fun Habit, and that is the art of savoring. And um, there was early research done in positive psychology about the practice of savoring, whether it's something that you have in your mouth, a piece of food, or an activity. And I want you to share with us about the savor system that you are utilizing within The Fun Habit, how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. Yeah. So SAVER is actually a set of tools that the last letter, it's an acronym, right? And so the last letter is relishing. And that's really a concept of being able to, you know, expand the power that fun has. And so I I think we talked about it last time. I'm not sure. Um, A big fan of Fred Bryant. You know, he certainly has put together an amazing book about all the research regarding savoring. And I think, you know, mindfulness has taught a lot of us to savor in the moment. But one thing that's often undervalued is being able to savor after the fact. And so real quick, the SAVER acronym stands for story editing, activity bundling, variable hedonics, options and relishing. But the R in SAVER certainly is about how we can relish things after the fact, especially if we're mindful about it. And it makes these fun events in our lives that much more rich and meaningful because we can unpack them, but then we can also use them as information on how we can continue on. And so oftentimes we talk about downward spirals, right? Like, you know, the weight of the world and all the world's problems kind of weigh us down and we start to, you know, attract that because we'll start looking for it. 
But once you sort of get a taste for the fact that you have a little bit more control about the the path that you're taking, you know, the bad's always going to be there, but the good always is as well. And so you can start to bias yourself towards that. And so savoring in those moments, again, allows you to relive them. And so, you know, you're extending the amount of time that you're living in a joyful state. But then it also goes, you know what, I really like that. And so, you know, maybe I'll you'll schedule it again. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, um, you'll reach out to that person, right? Like, uh, you know, that was so much fun. Um, and so, you know, mechanisms like Facebook know that. That's why, you know, oftentimes they'll they'll bring up, you know, what your memory was. But that's based on a false currency, right? I mean, they, their algorithm does it, you know, based on likes and comments. So what I suggest is you do it more mindfully because some of the most intimate, rich moments you're not going to put on social media. You know, social media is really curated. So, you know, make marks on your own calendars about, wow, this was really you know, a pleasant, rich experience. And I want to be reminded of it, you know, at an interval that I control. Um, and also, you know, maybe, you know, uh, nudge to uh, reach out to the person that was involved with that experience yeah. or nudge to do it again so that you're replicating that experience. Wow. So, so much good stuff. And I, I urge everybody to to read The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. My guest today has been Dr. Mike Rucker. You can connect with him at michaelrucker.com and on social media through Twitter at Perform Better, on Facebook at mike.rucker.phd, and on Instagram, The Wonder of Fun. Mike, come back again. Don't let it be five years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lisa. Thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, have another conversation with you. Oh, Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for sharing part of your day with me. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Mike Rucker, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.